stories to you. Hello, my name's Ed Wright, and it's a pleasure to be hosting this conversation with Rick Morton as part of the Newcastle Writers Festival Stories to You series in 2021. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which I live and work, the Awabakal people and Warramai peoples. And I pay my respects to Elders past and present. Welcome to any Aboriginal people who might be listening to this conversation. My guest is Rick Morton, an award-winning journalist and writer who has published three books. And we're going to be talking about his latest book, My Year of Living Vulnerably, today. Welcome, Rick. Thanks so much for having me, Ed. Um, yeah. It's a pleasure. Yeah. And it's such a terrific book. And we've, um, it's, it's so lovely to have you here. Um, I just thought I'd ask you to begin with. What led you to think of embarking upon a year of living vulnerably? Yeah, that is the eternal question, that one. And I think I think I was doing it anyway in small steps because unbeknownst to me, I mean, I didn't at the time, you know, five or six years ago, have a diagnosis of complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which precipitated all of this. But I was, you know, trying to work through these massive seismic shifts in my own brain and these kind of massive episodes of, you know, really quite upsetting turmoil. And the things that began uh, to help and the things that I began to notice helping were little applications of love and uh, a little bit of exposure and, and being more open to the world. And without categorising it or being systematic in my application of it, um, I must have known at the back of my mind that those little bits and pieces were working. And when I finally got the label of this diagnosis, um, complex PTSD, and heard what it was, which I'd never heard of it before, but it, it's characterised by a lack of love. And so I thought, well, if, it's, if that's the cause, um, then perhaps the solution is a kind of a radical um, systematic effort of trying to make this a way of living. Um, and so that's kind of where I was coming at. But I took a really broad definition of what love is because... Um, I don't have much expertise in the romantic field, Ed. I don't know if that'll surprise you. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, so I, I wanted to look at it really through the prism of what is, you know, curious to me about the world we live in. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting, that last word that you've just used, curiosity. And yeah. I, I found this about your book, that what we might be dealing with is, and I, I was going to put this question to you later, but since you've mentioned Curious just then, <laughs> um, the idea of um, how curiosity, when there is not love, curi is curiosity, do you think, a sufficiently sustaining force to make life worthwhile living? Do you know what? I was having this exact conversation yesterday with someone else and, and this came up because, yes, uh, in fact, his words were, you know, curiosity as a shield against depression. Um, but just more generally, I mean, if I've always said this, I mean, curiosity, I think, is the best quality a person can have. Um, you know, we are all born ignorant and we are all at various stages of our life ignorant about different things. But it's the, the tendency to be curious about the world you live in that really matters because um, that's what takes you from knowing nothing to knowing something. And as long as that effort is always there, uh, then I genuinely believe that life is worth living and, and to be interested and engaged in not just, you know, your social network or your family or your personal love life, but but the big kind of meaty parts of life itself. Um, 
I, I honestly find so kind of tantalizing. Um, and to me, it has been a, a kind of a way out, I guess, of this kind of really muddled thinking in my 20s where I was trying to put up these walls and not uh, engage um, fulsomely at all with any of these things. And it was a really lonely existence. Yeah. Taking back to that moment where you were talking earlier of those little bits of love that you're able to find and and kind of gave almost like hints as to how you might learn to live in a strange sort of way. Um, and we all have to learn to live, I think. You know, I mean, I think this model of um, life where we just assume that it's a progression and it all just happens to us and we're fine, you know, it, life's a challenge and, you know, not always very easy. And I think that's no. important to remember. And, you know, there's a value in that too, in it not necessarily being easy sometimes because that's how you can discover things that might not otherwise be there or might not otherwise be visible. And, you yes. know, certainly in the writing of a book, you you know, and certainly your book, you're going into these intriguing areas of existence, which you've come, you know, and I can't comment on your behalf on the writing of it, but certainly as a reader of it, I've come away with kind of learning things. And that's that curiosity. But I was that's going to ask... compliment, yeah. <laughs> um, but I was going to ask you, um, with that idea of love, do you think there is something about how you emerge from that kind of frenzy of adolescence. And as you begin to quieten down, maybe, you know, in your mid-20s, you get a sense of perspective, like that there's no perspective. And I thought in my own life, probably until I'm in my late 20s, mm. and I've heard other people say that, and that what you're coming into now, I suppose, what, your early 30s? Yeah, just turned 34 yesterday. There you so, go. Still early well, Thursday. Monday, yeah, Mon yeah, Monday whenever this comes out, I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. You know, do you think this is part of a, a process of some of the perspective that comes if you're engaged in your own mind but also, you know, kind of interested in maturity in a way? I think that's a that's an amazing point. And, and yes, um, I think a lot of what I'm going through now, I mean, I had a delayed adolescence, really. I mean, I had all of my teenage years, really, in my early 20s, which was a complete disaster. <laughs> but so it took me longer than it probably otherwise should have. And there were a couple of other things like, you know, financial uh, stress and, and mental health issues that were kind of delaying my ability to get better or to have the cognitive space. And, and honestly, I recognise my privilege now in that I have been financially comfortable for the last two or three years for the first time, not just comfortable, but comfortable enough to help my mum yeah. as well because she was, you know, um, she never made it out of poverty and that was always my great big stressor. So once I had those things in place, um, I did free up a lot of space in my own mind and I did get to spend more time thinking incredibly deeply about these things. But it's not like it was something that I just started then. Like I was always curious. In fact, the best thing my mum ever did for us, among many things, was teach us to be curious, totally accidentally, because she's just a curious little hobbit in her own life and is fascinated by the world with an almost childlike awe. And she bequeathed that to us. And I think that and, and distance from, you know, poisonous thinking is a really helpful scaffold on which to build a life. And there's a great line in, I don't think I quote it in this book, but in Grapes of Wrath, where I can't remember the name, but um, Ma is talking to the young woman who's pregnant and she's just had a breakup, I think, with her partner and she's crying and it's the worst pain she's ever been through. 
And she says to her ma, she said, how do you do it? Like, how do you survive this horrible heartbreak? And, you know, her mother says, well, you know, when you're that young, a big hurt and a big loss is one large thing that looms in a life that is quite small. But over time, these things become, you know, numerous. And, yeah. and when you pull back um, with the benefit of age, you actually do see that these things are the size they ought to be in the context of the world at large. And I think that is a helpful perspective to bring to some of this stuff. Yeah. And as we get older, we live perhaps less in the moment. Like I've just, I'm in my fifties now and what you get is, you know, a lot of your life has lived backwards. You know, you get that sense of perspective. And so in a way their events touch you, but they don't touch you often with the same intensity as they might've. And and also, I mean, I don't know about you, but for me, uh, I was just breathtakingly scared for so long of what everyone else thought about me uh, and just to the point where it, it, it hobbled me uh, and I was unable to fully kind of lead into being in the world, I guess. And the best thing that ever happened was that I just realised one day that it didn't matter, um, good or bad, what anyone else thought of me as long as I was happy in my own head. Uh, which is another task. But, you know, again, when you've got the curiosity and you've got the passion for learning something or just getting stuck in, um, you can be perfectly fine on your own and you don't need that external validation or you don't need to respond to that that external, um, that critic that doesn't have anything worth saying. Obviously, constructive criticism is, is useful, but, you know, if people are just being mean, water off a duck's back. Yeah, and, and it gets easier to kind of not, go looking for validation as well, which I kind of, so. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's still nice to get. <laughs> that never yeah. goes away, I don't think. Particularly when you've got a book coming out. <laughs> yeah. Ed, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to say no, put it that way. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, and I mean, it's true. And that, that, that really doesn't necessarily go away, that kind of desire to be, you know, sort of, I suppose, recognised and, and to be, understood by the world in a way mm, yeah and i think you know uh, as long as you're generous in that in that if you if you demand to be understood as i do by the world um then you should put at least as much effort i think into understanding other people uh yep. and being agreeable not agreeable but being open to why they are the way they are in in a kind of in a kindly judgmental way like being willing to forensically examine why it is that they might do something bad or good um, mm-hmm. and to understand something I've always said is not to excuse anything. Um, but I really do think that we are uh, the product of so many different forces in our lives and we would all do well, I think, to better understand that of other people. Yeah. And, and I mean, you go back to, in this book, you talk about complex, you're talking about complex PTSD and we've touched on that already. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously you've covered you know, there's a particular moment that you've also covered um, in 100 Years of Dirt, you know, which is this moment of your brother getting burnt and um, your mother and brother flying off to hospital and your father being sort of caught in Anamarata by you with the nanny. Great um, turn. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because that's what we do in the Morton family. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'll... No, no, we do. We do. We laugh about it. It's ridiculous. We... We've got the darkest sense of humour you could humor. possibly imagine. Yeah. And, you know, for that, for you, that moment, you know, from having read both books seems to strike, you use that as a kind of trigger 
as a as a kind of the trigger moment of what you think might be your you know complex PTSD. Mm. But in a way, it's a lot more than that, isn't it? And well, and yeah. sorry, go on. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. Please, please. Well, I mean, like, I mean, I guess. I mean, I don't. It is. It, it's not just the trigger moment. I mean, it, to me, it, it delineates my entire life um, between two halves. Okay. There was, yeah, there was the point up until that moment when I was seven where life was pretty good. Uh, my parents were together. Uh, my dad and I didn't have a particularly close relationship, but he wasn't abusive. Um, he was emotionally absent, which has its own dangers. Um, but I had my mum and my brother and then my sister was born three weeks before all of this stuff happened. Um I guess the the point of that story, and I did, I did, I tell, I tell it in One Hundred Years of Dirt, um, but I didn't understand what it was. Like I, yeah. I knew I was upset, and I knew that it had led to a sense of abandonment and and all of this kind of stuff. But I didn't realize that that actually made it a trauma because I'd never heard of complex PTSD, yeah, and which is defined by that kind of persistent, consistent uh, lack of love from a primary caregiver. Um, particularly for me after he left our lives entirely from that moment and left me particularly when I was alone on the cattle station and just wandering the halls of this homestead looking for someone to care for me because I've just watched my brother burn and my mum and my sister and him are all 1,200 kilometres away. And understanding, I guess, the way that reverberates throughout my own life um, to this day has been so powerful for me and I hope for other people in, in recognising that it might be them too because, you know, I'd written a whole book um, about my family and, and trauma more broadly and had never once considered that it might apply to me. And, you know, that might sound like a theoretical um, point, but the treatment and the therapy for trauma-related illnesses is so markedly different to what you get if you've got depression or anxiety or a host of other um, illnesses and it's it's much harder to find qualified people to do that work as well so to me it meant that I could actually totally marshal all of my resources in a way that was much more productive and so it was you know having that diagnosis and having that understanding was uh, life-changing for me. Okay and so where do you get a diagnosis like that from? Well, I mean, this is the problem because I had been seeing six or seven psychologists over the course of six or seven years. Um, I kind of tend to speed date them <laughs> because <laughs> in my, my moments of distress, I'm like, mm, maybe not, maybe not, maybe not, maybe not, uh, and until I find one that I think works. But the problem was that none of them had bothered, and it's not necessarily their fault, but I, I had been given my diagnosis when I was 20, um, but this stuff for me didn't start happening until I was 24, 25. And so none of them queried the initial diagnosis, which was depression and generalised anxiety disorder, anxiety, yeah. um, both of which are very valid diagnoses and are symptoms of people with trauma, but they are not the cause of the trauma or, or and it totally misses the bigger picture. And so I'd gone to all of these people, but no one had ever mentioned that might, this might have even been a possibility. And it, so it wasn't until I was on this, you know, I was actually at the Newcastle Writers Festival. That's the, that's the genesis of this for me because I was on stage talking about trauma in a general sense. But the woman next to me, Dr. Mira um, Atkins, Atkinson, um, was reading from her yeah. book Traumata. Yeah. And she described my life like word for word 
what she described as a traumatic episode was what was happening to me. And so I went and looked up a trauma specialist and I was living in Canberra at the time. And so I just went to the first one I found and I just went in there with no preconception. I told him that I had some suspicions and I told him my life story and within half an hour he's like, oh, yeah, that's, that's complex PTSD. And I was like, what is this thing that you now speak of? So that was that was the start of it. And I'm like, I, I was like literally as involved as you could be in the trauma discussion without being an academic yeah. and I didn't know any of these things. So that's one of the reasons, not the only reason, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was because I'm like, if, if I was dumb enough to not understand that it could be me, then what, you know, where, uh, where is everyone else getting their help from? Yeah, and, and, and in the earlier part of the book, you take the reader on a bit of a voyage through the various kinds of treatment that yes. you kind of seek. You know, there's the, um, the neuro... Oh, the neurofeedback. Yeah, the neurofeedback, and then which you kind of are, are probably, perhaps getting some way with, which is an intriguing yeah. form of therapy, and then only to kind of get kiboshed by COVID. Honestly, it's my luck. <laughs> <laughs> Here I am, like, finally, I've got a book advance. I'm doing neurofeedback partly because I find it fascinating, partly because a trauma specialist told me it's the only thing that works for trauma because you're actually attacking the underlying wiring in the brain. And and thirdly, because I've got the book advance that I can spend on the sessions because it's not covered by Medicare um, okay. to any substantial degree. And so I thought I might as well claim it on tax and <laughs> try and keep myself better. <laughs> Um, you know, I'm killing three birds with one stone <laughs> in that case. And then, of course, bloody the pandemic happens and they suddenly they're not allowed to rub the gel on my earlobes, which I understand. And so it's cut short, um, well short of when I probably should have needed it um, or the number of sessions. But, you know, it was I need to go back because there was something starting to happen. And I won't bore you with all of the details about how it works, but really you're trying to trick your brain into doing the right thing. Uh, in terms of its thinking, but you are not in control of that process, which is why they need to use the machine that reads your reads your brainwaves. Because um, if I was in control of that process, then I really could go to talk therapy and fix it with a psychologist. But that's not what helps with trauma related illnesses. So, essentially, with something like complex PTSD, what you're left with is a, I suppose, a system of reactive patterns to an event. Yes. that's in the past but then goes on to kind of um, circumscribe your reactions to the events of your current life and make your life difficult as a consequence of that. It's, it's quite counterproductive because it is, do, it, it is the brain doing exactly what we evolved to do, um, which is, you know, something horrible happens to you, particularly when you're young. It takes not just a snapshot of the important memory, uh, but it takes a, a four-dimensional readout, essentially, of all of the senses that are involved in that moment, the smell, the taste, the touch, uh, and also the way your body reacts, the adrenaline, um, if it's in a fight-or-flight kind of response. And it, it just imprints it on a card and then stores it. And any time in the future that something, you know, triggers those senses, you know, if you smell something similar or if you're, um, you know, worried about a set of circumstances as I was, which is my dad leaving me when I need him the most, then it just brings out that card and presses the button. And then all of a sudden, you're not just remembering the event, you are re reliving it in every possible conceivable way, down to the response in your body. And that's what makes it so difficult to overcome, because intellectually, 
even well, particularly now that I understand how all of this works, that doesn't save me from it. Like it yeah. helps me get better at containing it, but it doesn't do away with the 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 pulse uh, in the body, um, the adrenaline, and all of that stuff is such a convincing liar. And it it <clears throat> still, as a thirty four year old who has spent so much time thinking about this, it still makes me think that my world is coming to an end. Wow. Yeah. And so in your book, you also chronicle kind of attempts to kind of be intimate. And, you know, there's that terrible sort of moment. And this, you know, for some people might be a trigger moment. So I I might just mention it. Fair um, warning. Fair warning of, um, you know, sort of going to the Imperial at Erskineville one night and ending up going home. That's not the trigger warning, by the way. No, no, no. The Imperial's a lovely place. I'm sorry, I told you I had a dark <laughs> There's nothing wrong with going to the Imperial. Sorry. <laughs> That's quite funny. I'm sorry. Yeah. You've given me I the couldn't giggles. help myself. I saw a joke there and yeah. I went for it. Oh, um, it worked. You gave me the giggles. <laughs> um, but um, there's that, you know, and, and you kind of essentially drugged and probably, you know, raped, taken back to a place and raped and something else that you make light of. But what I was going to ask you, do you think that there's a relationship between, you know, the way that once you've got this trauma to begin with, it tends to reproduce trauma in your life? Yes. Yes. In fact, it's it's so well studied. And the, the I mean, the key definition of particularly betrayal trauma, which is what I've got, it's a, it's not a, I wasn't in a car accident. I wasn't shot. I wasn't at war, but someone in my life who should have loved me didn't. And, and that broke this um, kernel of trust. Yeah. Uh, and the trust is gone forever. I mean, the number one task is bringing that back into your life, right, and being able to trust other people again, which I don't and haven't been able to for a long time. And what that does is, and it's the same with, I write about these orphanages in Romania, it's the same with the kids who are brought up without any loving touch or care, and it's the same with kids today in our foster system and people like me to varying degrees. But when you sense something that is dangerous or that is a little bit off, as I did that night, you don't necessarily do anything about it a because you don't think you're worth it um but b because and it's not that you trust these people more willingly because you don't trust anyone the the point certainly this bears out in my own life and and has been touched on in various kinds of research the point is that you don't need to trust them because the worst thing has already happened to you and that was someone you actually loved um violating that trust so it just means that you're more kind of, I guess you're trying to think of the right way to say it. You're not um, interrogating the motives of these people um, in the way that you are those who are close to you. In fact, you might more willingly go because it means that you'll feel something, um, even if it's not good. Yeah. And that that is a problem. Um, and they did these studies with the, the kids who grew up in these orphanages in Romania where they they got a stranger to go to the door and ask them to come with them. You know, these are just children. And, you know, 50%, I think it was, chose to go with the stranger versus a very low percentage of uh, similar kids who are in the foster care system in Romania, which is a step up, but not great. And, and then I, I think it was only two children out of their control group in the normal community um, chose to go with this stranger. So there's something about that broken link um, 
that that is tangible in in kids like us, where we um, trust is obliterated, and we find ourselves in positions that that sometimes perpetuate the trauma and 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 just pile on um, episodes of it um, of a different nature altogether. Yeah, but at the same time, you're cognizant of this risk, I suppose, and particularly. Um, you know, you talk about touch in in your in your book there, and how you've become mm. a you've become a hugger. Yeah, <laughs> a, 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 an annoying hugger. Uh, yes, I've become <laughs> one of those people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but for you, it actually has a really productive kind of capacity, and it, it sort of brings that sort of I suppose the physical component of love back into your body. It's it's to me, it's the number one sensation. Um, we, we forget that that touch is something that we need because it happens so incidentally for most of us or, or for most people, um, you know, from high school, we get in and out of relationships. And so you're never really without it for too long. Um, yeah. And in my case, I was without it for, like, for about a decade. Um, and mostly by accident, but also deliberately, I was one of those people who refused to hug anyone yeah. in my 20s. I didn't like it. It made me uncomfortable. Um, and it made me uncomfortable for the precise reasons that we were just talking about before with going with those strangers. Like I didn't think I deserved it. Um, and it was easier to to maintain my fortress of solitude if I didn't let people in um, because the moment, and this was something that I experienced, the moment you start giving a little bit of ground to something that's enjoyable, like, you know, human on human touch, not even in a romantic sense, just, just touch, uh, the more you want it. And then you realise, oh, I've made a terrible mistake by excising this from my life entirely. And in in my case, that was a realisation that I had to come to. And it was one that happened, I swear to God, automatically. Like I just, it, it was like my arms just began springing open without permission from my brain because the skin was hungry. And it was such a remarkable thing. I mean, if you actually think about it, you mean, you know, sometimes if you brush someone's arm in a cinema, or something like that. There is an electric kind mm. of thrill. Um, and again, please don't think that I mean that in a sexual way because that's what people confuse this for. But it is one of the most elemental foundational things in human existence is that sense of contact. Mm. And again, with those Romanian orphanages, uh, the orphans were not held or touched in any meaningful sense. And it wasn't just that it ruined them psychologically, but they were shorter. Um, they had gastrointestinal problems. Um, their stress levels were through the roof um, and they were fed a balanced nutritional diet. So it had nothing to do with food or the physical circumstances of their otherwise kind of um, institutionalisation. It was because they were not touched. Yeah. And that's what malformed their bodies and their minds. Yeah. And I mean, there's been research in it, like you do mention in the book, the famous experiment with the monkeys and the... Yes. Um, you know, they they go for the warm covered monkey rather than the um you know the steel monkey with the um the bottle of milk. Food, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so there is something primal and primate about yes. this kind of desire that we have. And I don't and, want to be like I don't want to be a reductionist or an essentialist like this, but we are primates. Yeah. Uh, and we ultimately are animals. And I think understanding particularly the animalistic part of our brain, which is the amygdala, funnily enough, the lizard brain yep. that controls trauma. I mean, I think that has such explanatory power um, because we think ourselves so evolved and to a degree we are. Um, but, you know, anyone who's spent 
time alone with me for more than two days realizes I'm not that far removed from monkeys. I can assure <laughs> you. So, um, you know, I live a pretty simple existence most of the time, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what point I was trying to make there, but there <laughs> a little insight into my, my thinking. But, um, you know, it's a sort of like you've, yeah, I think that's a really interesting point because actually, you know, I've, I've talked to people and, and therapists about this idea of how you have to bring your mind back into your body. Mm, yes, yes. I mean, the, the, you can't separate the two. Um, you know, during the worst of my attacks, um, and I didn't realise this at the time, again, because I didn't know that these two things were linked, but I was having the most excruciating um, abdominal pains. It felt like, and I was talking to someone else about this yesterday, it felt like I was being stabbed with a dagger in the stomach and then having it twisted. Mm-hmm. And these things would last for about 12 hours and they always, always, always coincided with uh, periods of acute stress in my life. Um, they, they had no known medical cause. Uh, they never, you know, they, I, you know, at most I had one or two in a year and they were always around these kind of breakdowns of mine. And it was somatic. It was, it was uh, absolute distress from my anxiety and my trauma manifesting in the body body yeah. um, and it's not a this, this is not a wacky scientific convention this is accepted mm. um consensus science this um this is how our mind and our bodies work they are one and the same i mean our mind is just particles um it's just atoms um, yeah. and so yeah. is our body there's no difference between the two of them yeah and um, one of the things i really like about your book is towards the end of it when you know, you're talking about love and things like that. And we've talked about curiosity. Mm. And then one thing I really found very interesting and, you know, resonated for me very strongly was the idea of um, not so much faith, but doubt and the importance of doubt in life. Do you want to talk to that a little bit? Yeah. And I, and I, I do, because I think it's another thing that governs my existence. And maybe I'm retrospectively trying to come up with a theory that makes my, my way of living okay. <laughs> yeah. But I do genuinely, I mean, I've never had a whole heap of confidence. Um, but I think uh, a good example of this is imposter syndrome, right? Like I don't like my work. I mean, I enjoy doing it, but I don't think I'm good at it in the moment. Um, and yet somehow I persist and I've had um, objectively pretty good success so far. And so I've always had this weird optimism that eventually things will turn out okay, but I hate my work when I turn it in in the moment. And I think, and I say this to other people, I'm like imposter syndrome is a great thing to have because it means that you are constantly trying um, to do better, to be better, um, and to kind of sense check your own thinking about things. And I don't just mean in the work sense now, but in, in terms of the way you think about the world. I have been wrong about many things. Um, and <laughs> it's, I, I like to upturn the, the, that old phrase, often wrong, never in doubt. Yeah. Um, I, I think we should be often wrong, always in doubt, um, because it's the doubt that becomes, I guess, the engine of curiosity uh, in that sense. It, it propels you to, to find out and discover and it's how you it's how you evolve. Yeah, I mean, how you ask the questions that help you to yeah. learn. And yeah, like I mean, obviously, I frame the doubt stuff at the start of that chapter in a religious sense, hmm. because I have always struggled with um, my own sense of belief. 
Um, I don't believe. I really genuinely wish I could. I used to when I was a kid, but I was also, I would have believed anything. I used to believe that I could have an out-of-body experience if I went to bed with my arm in the air and <laughs> fell asleep. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I was pretty gullible as a kid, um, but I've never, I've, I, I, I think faith can be ruinous when applied in large doses. Um, it's a beautiful thing to have um, as a kind of personal um, fortification, but I think blind faith is dangerous and I think doubt is a really genuine um, kind of antidote to a lot of the, the ailments in the world right now, such as increasing polarisation in politics, for example. Yeah, I think, and that's something about your book, the way you start off with this personal predicament and then begin to move out into these ideas about, I suppose, society in general, but also how to articulate ourselves and our own responsibilities towards that. Yeah, well, that's a really nice way of looking at it, actually. And because it is, I mean... I say this all the time now, but I feel like once I got my diagnosis of trauma and I realised how prevalent it was without necessarily being diagnosed, it was like I'd been given um, special goggles uh, that, you know, almost like the matrix that allowed me to see the code behind how the world works. And everywhere I look, particularly because I, I cover social policy issues um, in my day job as a journalist, everywhere I look, I see people who are suffering from trauma, yeah. um, even if it's not entirely obvious. I mean, there are people who wanted to be loved by their parents who never were, um, certainly not in the ways that they wanted, either by one or, or the other or both, and it's particularly bad if neither of them love you, um, but also um, instances of physical trauma, violence, car crashes, and the way that then bleeds into the way we operate in the world, uh, but also what I think is starting to instill a sense of panic in me is being having a front row seat to all of these public discussions about policy and ideas and the battle between left and right and and what's good for the world. Now, I believe in certain things when it comes to progressive politics, um, but what I have trouble with witnessing this debate is how careless we all are to a degree about where it is other people are coming from and why it is they are the way they are. And, you know, it started off as a little bit of a kind of a, a niggle, I guess, underneath the skin, but in the last couple of years, it's grown, it's, it's genuinely terrifying to me because I don't know once you unlock that, how you put that back in the bottle, um, that kind of coarseness in public debate and a real inability. And I think part of this has something to do with the avatar of ourselves we use online, the complete inability or lack of will to treat the person at the other end of this discussion as a person. Yeah, um, you and it's it's a dangerous place to be, I think, because we see what happens when that is taken to its logical extremes, both in terms of right-wing terrorism, um, but also in terms of a, a broader kind of uh, malaise on the left, I think, online where, you know, we sacrifice truth sometimes um, just to win the debate against these horrible, horrible right-wingers. And it's hard to compare the two because they are different things, but I think there is an essential element in the middle that combines the two of them, and it's this, it, it's, it's this inability to defer to um, facts and the basic humanity of other people that is, that is the genesis of that problem, I think. Do you think it's a, that becomes a problem when people use sort of politics as a way of identifying their belonging? rather than actually, you know, thinking through the issues. And that 
I mean, it's a very human thing, you know, the in, in, you know, in human psychology, the idea of the in-group and the out-group. And we perform our belonging by um, excommunicating people from our, our inner groups for various yeah. reasons. And so there's a fervour attached to that kind of idea, which perhaps has been accelerated by the capacity to, you know, form online communities and, and to make larger communities who hold themselves together through greater extremism in a way. Yes. And in fact, that's a really good point because, and I can't, I'm not, I'm not an expert and I haven't studied the, the uh, beginnings of all of this, but I did, I mean, over the last five or so years, I was, you know, I noticed particularly among conservative politics as a beginning that they cease to become defined by what you and I might understand to be ordinary conservative principles and more so define themselves by anything that the left isn't. Yeah. Um, and their whole raison d'etre really was to not be the left and to not be woke, quote unquote, or to be into identity politics. And they didn't really have a coherent worldview. Now, to combat that, we've seen the rise of um, a kind of a mirror image of that on the left. Now, I'm not saying that the left is as um, politically or um, physically dangerous as what we've seen with the rise of white supremacy and, and, and alt-right kind of groups around the world. But there has been a, a particular fervour to this, uh, this kind of identity on the left, particularly as I see it play out online in Australia. And it's almost like they're doing the same thing. We are defined by anything that is not Scott Morrison and his coalition government. Um, terrible government, by the way. Um, but if you, if you pick apart what, what they claim to be the coherent thread of this group, it falls to pieces because yeah. there are people who say that they hate sexism and they do when it comes from the coalition. But as soon as you point it out in a Labor politician, for example, or even among their own language online, suddenly it doesn't matter because the real goal is getting rid of Scott Morrison. And I'm like, well, maybe the real goal should be progress in us as individuals because that then elects a better government, I think. And, and that's what I'm witnessing. And it really troubles me. It genuinely troubles me. And I don't, you know, I, I try not to get involved too much online because you can't have a nuanced discussion about this. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, and, you know, when I've tried, people have been like, well, so you think Trump is the same as the left? I'm like, well, no, um, definitely not. <laughs> um, but, but I don't think we gain anything as a community by turning a blind eye to our worst instincts. And factionalise um, yeah. And factionalise it. And that goes for anyone wherever you are, and myself included. You know, wherever I've been hypocritical in that approach um, and have been told, um, I hope I've listened, and particularly when it's come from people I respect, because that's the only way we improve um, God as a species, let alone yeah. as a <laughs> Australians. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's true. Um, we're probably going to have to wrap it up in a minute, but just mm. to bring it back from that sort of macro level back to you for a bit. Um, you've had your year of living vulnerably um, and, you know, what What do you think you've gained or lost from that? And, you know, having lived for a year vulnerably, is it just, it, does it become a lifetime project to maintain that vulnerability? Look, I think it does. And, you know, a, a year is a, you know, it's it's really just a title, but I put a lot of concerted effort into the last year while I was working on this book to do all of these things as a way of testing, you know, how it affects me. And the, the, the ultimate lesson here, and it, it appears to be simple, but you really, it, it's so magical when you understand it. 
we don't get out of the world what we don't have a language for. Um, and if you don't, it's the same thing with practicing love and kindness mm-hmm. and, and happiness. Happiness is not something that you can just achieve, but it is something that can visit upon you when all of the conditions are right. And if you deploy these things throughout your life, and, and as my therapist said to me once, kindness is letting someone in in traffic. It can be as small as that. And it yeah. does. It makes you feel good. It makes you feel good. And if you don't do any of those things, then you can't be fulfilled in your own life. It's just, it it might as well have not exist in the architecture of your brain. And so really what this is, is its own version of cognitive behavioral therapy, where you're trying to train your brain to focus on, you know, context and good, Um, but you're doing it in a way that actually makes living genuinely worthwhile. And really, I mean, what I was trying to do was answer the ancient philosophical question that everyone has asked since time immemorial, which is what makes life worth living? Yeah, yeah. And I think being fully in it um, and being exposed to all of it, good and bad, is is it makes you feel really genuinely alive. And I, I've had a, a wonderful year just learning about stuff. So I'm not going to stop, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on um, to... Um... Oh, I'm going to have to remember. Oh, dear, I've stuffed that up. Sorry, Rick. Newcastle <laughs> Writers Festival Stories to You, I hope, podcast series. Um, you know, that's been great talking to you. And, you know, fantastic congratulations on the um, My Year of Living Vulnerably, which is out now with HarperCollins tomorrow. It is, Fourth Estate, yep. HarperCollins. And, fourth um, Estate, yeah. Yep. No obligation to buy it, but if you do, I'll love you forever. I'll love you forever <laughs> even if you don't because that is my new motto. And, um, you know, also just um, there'll, I've just got to remind the listeners there'll be a new episode of this airing every Wednesday and also to follow the festival on Facebook and Instagram for regular updates about the Newcastle Writers' Festival in 2021, which will be held from um, September the 24th to the 26th. to you.